This is Eschatology, and I'm Ben Thorpe. I'm back today with another interview episode, this time with Nana Agrawal-Hardin. She's a climate activist and a member of the Sunrise Movement. She's written some great essays about her experience as a young person grappling with both kind of high school and anxiety about the world collapsing, both in Medium and Teen Vogue. I'll make sure uh, to link to those essays and uh, make sure that they're pretty easy to find. We talked before the 2020 election, so some of this is a little bit dated, but I've left in questions about Joe Biden's climate platform because I think she does a great job of talking about how someone like Biden is a complicated figure for the climate movement. You'll also hear me mention a protest that the Sunrise Movement held outside the office of Debbie Dingell. For listeners who aren't from Michigan, she's a Democratic congressional representative from the state. Okay, uh, here we go. So my name is Nana Agrawal-Hardin, pronouns she, her, hers, uh, and I have spent my whole life in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, and started organizing for climate justice as a sophomore in high school, found my way to my local Sunrise Hub and fell really in love with Sunrise's theory of change, and have been working locally and nationally with Sunrise ever since fighting for a Green New Deal and a just transition off of fossil fuels. Just start by talking, for those who don't know, what is the Sunrise Movement? Yeah, uh, so Sunrise is is a youth-led movement um, fighting for fighting to stop the climate crisis and create millions of good jobs in the process. Um, we, we focus on both people power and political power, so we believe um, in, in movement-powered legislative change, uh, and we are... Nationwide, we have, you know, I think over 300 hubs at this point across the country. Um, so a, a nationwide movement of young people. Is there a kind of age group primarily that is part of this movement? Funny you should ask. Um, yes, so absolutely. I mean, Sunrise defines young people as anyone under the age of 35, although certainly there are older folks who um, volunteer for the movement. But uh, really, it's it's people under 35, especially people like 18 to 22. Um, and then in the past year or so, I've actually helped to lead a lot of Sunrise's national uh, middle and high school engagement programming. And we've seen the the number of, you know, teenagers who are part of the movement grow uh, really, really quickly. Like thousands of teens have been absorbed into the movement just in the past year. So that's a, the general demographic. Uh, what, I guess, what's the pitch? And what, you know, when you start having this conversation with high schoolers, what are you saying to them about you know, is it kind of the doom and gloom or are you saying, hey, this is, you know, a way that we, you know, get our political voices heard? Definitely the latter. I think Sunrise uh, really comes out of an understanding that the way that we have talked about the climate crisis for so long has been all about like everything we stand to lose and, you know, polar bears dying in the Arctic and the whole world is going to go up in flames. And it's true that this is like a really unprecedented and terrifying threat to humanity, to biodiversity, to the planet. But like ultimately that messaging doesn't flip a switch in young people's brains, right? Like it just makes them lose hope and get demoralized and kind of shut it out. And so what we really do at Sunrise is um, talk about the world that we could build, um, you know, present the climate crisis as as an opportunity to build something better than what we have now. And that's what I found really excites young people. Yeah. And, you know, the Teen Vogue piece kind of touches on this. And I, I want you to kind of talk about the, the stress, though, like it is inevitably thinking about climate change and thinking about what could happen is really stressful. And 
you know, maybe talk to me about what it's like to try to get through your day while also having that hang over your head, basically. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think like it's different for me as an organizer um, than it is for like someone who generally cares about climate change but is not um, taking a lot of action for whatever reason. For me as an organizer, I feel a lot of the time uh, just like torn about where to put my energies because so much of our uh, educational system and the messaging that we get from a very young age is like, you know, to prepare for your future, you need to get good grades and you need to get into a good college and then you need to get a high paying job and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of be a, a cog in this machine. And then to be an organizer, especially on climate, is, is also to recognize that that machine is like also contributing to the destruction of the future you're supposed to be preparing for. So it's very difficult cognitively to to both try to do what society expects of you, but also um, do what you feel called to do in terms of like shaping a better future and protecting uh, protecting even just the, the idea of a future at all. Yeah, and I, and I think the piece kind of specifically touches on the ways in which capitalism is really the reason why we're heading towards this environmental crisis. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, our economy as it is structured right now is an extractive economy. It relies on extracting resources from the earth and it relies on extracting, um, you know, labor from the people on the earth. And with all of the, ex with all of that extraction, like, you know, that is the root of the climate crisis. Um, and so we have to shift our economy from an extractive one to a regenerative one. And in order to do that, we need to rely on the wisdom of indigenous populations. We need to do better at um, creating systems that promote accountability over like punishment. Um, and we need to do better at, at fighting for these intersectional solutions to the climate crisis that really challenge the root causes of of the crisis we face um and yeah i mean i already said it's it's very challenging to both like hold all of those things as true and um yeah still be living in this in the system that we live in and and that dominates our society uh but there's also a way in which um in which it's liberating like it's not it, just being a regular high school student is not easy um and inevitably sometimes you know you don't do so well on a paper or you apply for something and you don't get it or um you know you you fail sometimes to to live up to what you want to be doing and so also recognizing that you're working to build something better and that the system that you live in right now is not necessarily the one that you want like your kids to grow up in can help kind of give you perspective yeah, do you think being a part of the movement kind of helps in some ways mitigate that that larger dread question? Because it's like, well, I've got this thing that I'm I'm practically doing to try to help make the world a better place. Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely for the reason you said, and and then also just for the for the community that it gives you. Like some of my best best friends are people that I have met through local and national movement work, and it's a really incredible set of people who share a lot of my my values and. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have those bonds and those relationships. Yeah. And maybe last question on that piece, you also do a good job, I think, of, of linking the way that the environmental justice movement is also a part of economic justice. It's also a part of indigenous sovereignty. Talk to me about those links. Well, so my 
my personal story with this is that my dad is from northern India. My mom is uh, grew up in East Tennessee, and throughout my childhood, I've seen those places, um, you know, in Tennessee, ravaged by by drought and fire, and then in northern India, ravaged by really intense flooding. Um, and those are both communities where there's there's a lot of systemic poverty. India is in the global south, um, and so that makes it really really hard to rebuild from disasters. Um, and there are so many communities like that all over the world. And they are predominantly communities uh, of people of color, especially black and indigenous folks. Um, and, and also just communities that have not been invested in uh, economically. And the, the, the huge link there is that as our world becomes increasingly unstable with, uh, you know, more hurricanes and more floods and more fires like we're seeing out in California right now, um, it's it, those places are going to get left behind unless we really change uh, the way that our society is set up. Um, and they, they're already suffering those consequences. And so I think a lot of times we think about the climate crisis as, as something that is hap- going to happen in the future. And that's, you know, this, this looming threat, but it's not here yet. And it's really important to push back on that and say, actually, that's not true. You know, if you're a black person, if you're an indigenous person, if you are living in poverty, if you are living in the global south, it is here and it's terrifying. You talk in your medium piece about the increase in sit-ins that we're also starting to see kind of increases in arrests. So you talk about kind of this is one specific moment where arrests happened outside of, I think, Debbie Dingell's office. And, uh, you know, can you talk about maybe the frustration of watching these politicians talk about climate change in a way that doesn't seem to jive with, you know, the reality of kind of what's coming and, you know, the frustration about like watching these predominantly older politicians make decisions that are going to impact your life pretty significantly and not being able to do a whole lot about it. Yeah. Uh, it's so surreal. I mean, like I'm not even going to be able to vote on, on November 3rd in, in the 2020 general election, um, and most of my friends won't be able to either. And it's just, you just feel so powerless. Um, yeah, but at, you know, if we're talking about Congresswoman Dingell, um, we, we did have people get arrested at her office. Uh, and, and that was hard for her, it was hard for us. Um, but also like ultimately it drew attention to the issue. She introduced uh, legislation on climate in the months that followed that and and stepped up to the plate in terms of like, you know, meeting with us uh, in, in, a, in a less public setting and uh, yeah, talking to us about building a coalition to get uh, Green New Deal legislation through Congress. And I don't know that that, that those things would have happened if we hadn't taken those those risks. Um, and so it's like kind of a, a, a push-pull between like it's this constant feeling of helplessness and then also like sometimes seeing that if you do take action, it can pay off. Hmm. And then I, I was going to ask you a kind of loaded question uh, about how you feel about the, the climate policies that we're seeing out of the Biden campaign. Um, and, and again, this is like one of those things where you have to hold two things that seem like they're in opposition but are both true right so like number one is that biden has a really long way to go on climate policy um and it's going to be movements that need to to push him to get there um in terms of ambition in terms of scale in terms of investment in terms of 
um, things like banning fracking, like, you know, all, there are many, many areas in which he has room to grow. Um, and then also on the other hand, um, like his platform is arguably the most progressive we've ever seen from a Democratic candidate on on climate. And that's also a major movement victory. Like, you know, four years ago, we were not talking about climate at the debates, certainly. And we also were not talking about climate in the frame of creating jobs and in the frame of, um, you know, working to to combat societal injustices. And uh, that's I mean, that's a huge win. Like when when Biden talks about climate, he says things like, uh, when I think of climate, I think of jobs. That is a massive win for the movement. Um, so yeah, both both things are true. And the way that I interpret it is like, movements can win, but we've got a lot of work left to do. Yeah. Okay, so my last question for you is, how you think about, you know, an ideal future moving forward? What is that future that you talk about kind of to building towards getting to kind of build a future that's maybe not as dire or not as doom and gloom. What does that look like for you? Hmm. Uh, I love this question. Um, it looks like a, a dignified, high-paying job for everyone who wants one. It looks like access to clean water and clean air, no matter what zip code you were born in. It looks like fresh locally sourced food on the table every night. Uh, it looks like a $15 minimum wage. Um, it looks like uh, free public transport. Um, I mean, there's there's so many, so many things. It looks like investing in, in high paying, low carbon jobs in, in like care sectors, right? Like caring for the elderly, um, caring for people with disabilities, um, care, you know, there's, there, there's so much that we, that we are failing to do right now to take care of each other and to build strong, resilient communities. Um, and there's, and that means that there's so much, so much space to grow. And I'm excited to see that, that growth happen. That was Nana Agrawal-Hardin talking to me about her work in the Sunrise Movement. I'll make sure links to her essays are easy to find. Thanks for listening. This is Eschatology and I'm Ben Thorpe.